HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Hey there, you're listening to Fields, and we're speaking to Monica Goya, the author of Urban Farmers, The Now and How of Growing Food in the City. It's a new book out from Gestalten Press. We were really intrigued by this book that explores inner city agriculture, you know, everything from underground mushroom farms to rooftop beekeeping. Um, And we're excited to ask, you know, Monica a little more about the book that um, you know, it covers urban farming, but it's also positioned as a kind of manual for city dwellers who um, dream of having a more agrarian or just greener life. And we, um, <laughs> with opportunities for average city folk to, you know, learn best practices from experts and ways to get your hands dirty, as it says in the book. So, Monica, first, if you could just introduce yourself and what led you to this project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm a journalist and photographer, and um, Valerie, who is the co-editor and photographer of the book, and I met because of our mutual interest in urban agriculture. So we became friends despite living in different continents, because she is from New York. (laughs) Um, And through the years, we, we... mentioned often like it would be so great to do a project together. I'm curious a little bit about your interest in urban agriculture and urban gardening and if you have any experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I grew up in a rural area in northern Spain 
And when I moved to London, I really miss, uh, not at first, but after a while, I really miss uh, being in touch with nature. And so I started covering urban agriculture from there. Um, places like uh, Rowan Underground, um, which is a farm located in the tube tunnels, like, I don't know how many meters uh how many meters underground, and they grow um, fresh uh, herbs and microgreens. Um, I've also done uh, beekeeping, and so in a way, it felt like a way to be to feel closer to home, while also discovering the amazing things that London have. Because for me, it was quite shocking to see like beekeeping. For me, it was something that it was always attached to the countryside and it was quite surprising to see it in a city. Yeah, I love uh, even right in the intro of your book, I'll just read a few sentences. Um, You know, imagine that it's a sun dappled summer morning, the air smells of rosemary and dirt and there are chickens and ducks behind them. Skyscrapers cast their shadows over this little green haven in the middle of the city. Um, And I just love that scene setting, kind of the contrast of the urban setting with this kind of agrarian sensibility you cover in the book. And I guess I'd ask, what are the kind of unique opportunities that are presented to urban farmers or urban beekeepers over rural farmers? What did you find was kind of actually advantageous about growing in the city? Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the most interesting opportunities for urban farmers is the access that they have to the final consumer. So the chance to go beyond growing food because um, most urban farmers I talked to over the years mentioned that urban agriculture cannot feed entire cities. It's like, it's not possible and it shouldn't even try. However, they can do many other initiatives like um, workshops or guided tours that can introduce city people to farming and making, creating a sort of bond. Um, and like it's true that uh, some rural farmers do farmer mar- farmers markets in the city, and so they can they can talk to their customers. But it's it's like a once a week thing, and it's not the same buying produce from them. It's, I mean, it's quite different to visit the farm, to see how the plants grow, like from seed to then flower to then fruit. Um, I feel in that context, uh, there is more room to discuss vital topics like sustainability, soil health, biodiversity. And for example, biodiversity can take many shapes. There is... Um, there is a company called True Love Seeds, which is mentioned in, in the book, and they, they basically protect seeds from disappearing. Some of them are um, culturally significant crops for different communities, because often we think about animals going extinct, but we don't think about crops. So that's something else that can be done. And... Um, also, depending on the farm's mission, on the farm's mission um, farms could also support food security, like um, East New York farms do at their pink houses farm. 
So I, I mean, there are many different ways when urban farms have a chance to make a difference. Yeah, great. It sounds sort of educational, experiential, beyond just the physical production of fruits and vegetables. Monica, I really find it amazing all of the farms that you have covered and also the in-depth aspect of the farms that you covered. I I teach about urban agriculture and I'm very fond of True Love Seeds and and the work that Owen does and and also just um, a lot of the the New York farms that you cover in general, the farms in New York City and things like that. So I just kind of found it great kind of this um, deep dive that you did, especially Mm you know, not only talking about these urban farms, but talking about, you know, that seed company or seed saving and and biodiversity in that aspect. So I just kind of wanted to jump in and, and talk um, and yeah, kind of talk about that a little bit. I found that that was really great about the book. It's true. I think the biodiversity aspect is really interesting that um, these urban farms bring an important attention to the variety of seeds that other people wouldn't see or just a diversity of, or perhaps an insight into growing that people don't know about. And I think one of the best examples of that in the book was the saffron farm. Um, You know, saffron is the most expensive spice in the world and it's so labor intensive. I think in the book, you say it takes 150 grams of the flour to just produce one gram of saffron. And I think it was really interesting to see that cited in Paris in a city, um, this really labor intensive, really fragile process that most people would never otherwise um, witness. I'm kind of curious um, what, you know, what your experience was visiting that farm and what it was like to, um, or what the farmers had to say about growing something that luxurious and tedious, um, you know, kind of on top of a multi-story building in the middle of the city. Yeah, well, I couldn't actually. That's one of the farms I couldn't visit because of the because we work on the book during the pandemic. There were travel restrictions, and some quite a few farms I had visited before, um, but this one I didn't. But um, yeah, talking to them is it's interesting how people end up doing things. I mean, without a plan. She she said that because she saw that um, she had some saffron bulbs in her windowsill and she saw that they were thriving as opposed to the ones at her parents' house in the countryside. And she started thinking, oh, maybe this could be something that we could grow here. Urban farmers have the problem of space, <laughs> which is very limited, and therefore they have to grow crops that are... Um, maybe not expensive, but they can make a profit of from because otherwise, how can they survive? Last harvest, I think she said they had something like 700 grams and they are aiming to get one kilo. So it's not, <laughs> even if it's expensive, the amount of uh, saffron that they harvest is not, <laughs> is not, um, is not big either. Yeah, wow. It's really interesting that the sort of high end or luxuriness of the spice itself is kind of important aspect when you're dealing with such space constraints. You do need something that is incredibly valuable, or at least it helps. In my opinion, I think it's quite unique to have this kind of of uh, crop that is also very, 
is also close to other food cultures like Iran or Spain, to have the chance to have it in the middle of Paris um, is quite unique. And uh, it's only, I think, the harvest lasts only like two or three weeks in the early autumn, but people can, can witness the, the process, which is, is very intense and delicate. I'm also wondering, um, because that it could only be harvested in the fall, like saffron is actually a crocus, so it's a, it's a bulb, and usually crocuses come out in the spring and things like that, so I, I wonder if that also adds to why it's so expensive and kind of this luxurious thing because it could only be harvested in the fall. And so there's such a limited amount of time that you could actually get it. They did mention that it, you need to be, so you need to go and visit every day because you need to go on the exact day that the flower opens. Otherwise it's done. So it's really, you need to, <laughs> You need to be on top of things to make sure that it works. Sort of probably like the beekeepers you visited as well. I mean, that's a really um, intimate, attention requiring, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you know, type of engagement. And I think you note in the book that, you know, beekeeping, participating in a hive of bees um, is kind of becoming entangled in a whole food web and being so connected to so many other organisms in the city. And we're just curious if you can talk a little more about what you learned about urban beekeeping and the folks you met doing that. I have to admit that I was very surprised, as I mentioned before, the first time I was in touch with a beekeeper in the city, because to me, it had, that had been something that, you know, my grandmother in a rural town, very isolated did. <laughs> and in the city was like, what? Um, but I feel um, in terms of values, like beekeeping is like every living creature depends on each other somehow for survival. And bees are a symbol of that dependency or reliance. Like they provide vital pollination services for free. And then we need to provide them with flowers or trees um, for them to feed on them, to to then create the honey. So I I feel that bees also, once you are involved in, in beekeeping, they make you see the city with a different lens because suddenly you start looking at how many flowers there are, how many trees, um, you know, what the se- in which season the flowers bloom because bees work all through the warmer months. So they need flowers to bloom from, I don't know, spring till late summer. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a sort of a whole new different world that opens up for you when you become to, when you start to observe and nature in general and bees are such fascinating animals that they, I mean it's incredible <laughs> yeah they really are um I believe the guest essay mentions the bees themselves are sort of like a super organism um so thinking about being able to participate in the super organism of a beehive and also for city dwellers 
we often feel like we're part of a super organism of the city too. So it's kind of related. Yeah. I think one thing that I would like to point out, because every, every urban beekeeper I've talked to always says this, is that it's really important for people who want to, to begin beekeeping to make sure that there is enough food for the bees because with the rise of beekeeping, now in the city it's harder and harder for bees to find food, depending on where. So that's the one basic tip that they all... It's one of the rare th- occasions where they all say the same thing in New York, in London, everywhere. <laughs> and so what is their recommendation for the average urban gardener, city dweller to help help increase what bees need to stay healthy or just increase the kind of urban agriculture landscape? I think planting um, pollinator-friendly crops can help, even if you even if you have just a windowsill space, something tiny. It is better than nothing. And also trees, I mean, I didn't realize when I started on this, but trees are so important. You tend to, at least in my case, I tended to think of flowers and trees can make a better work than flowers when they are in bloom because um, Tim from Wilk uh, Apiari, he said that, uh, I believe he said half a million flowers. A tree could provide half a million flowers when it's in bloom. I'm not sure about the, but I think it was half a million. And that's, that's incredible. Yeah, Monica, that's um, totally, yeah, I've, I've heard that too, that a lot of um, urban bees actually, and bees in general get their food from trees. So maybe also the idea of us focusing on our street trees in urban areas and like, are they, what kind of flowers are they, you know, <laughs> producing? Are they friendly to our, to our, not only our honeybees, but our native bees and things like that. So that's a, yeah, really great mm-hmm. kind of aspect. Yeah. Cause my first thought was, oh, what could we recommend people plant in their own garden, you know, tomatoes and squash. And now I'm realizing, well, part of that is also making sure you plant plants with the other non-humans that are part of this system. It's not just for you to eat. You need to plant things for them to eat too. Yeah. And then in the long run, they'll help us eat because the bees will pollinate our tomatoes and everything else. Right. So yeah, it's a, it's a really funny thing about New York's history um, because they chopped down all the trees and then at various points have had to bring back trees. And so there's lots of trees today, comparatively. There are cities that are a lot worse. But um, like at the end of the 19th century, I believe, there were sort of no trees and the progressives. It was like basically rich people who were like missing uh, verdancy, like just green stuff. And then over the 20th century, it's like, wait, trees fall on cars but also trees produce fruit, but also trees produce smells, but also you need trees for like birds and pollinators. And so like urban planning had to sort of bring trees back in after initially just being like nature, just kill all of that. Um, and I think the beekeeping is such a great example that's like on trend of, you know, yeah, the idea of those intimate relationships and you can't, you can't just do one thing, you know, you can't just have bees because you do need the trees that the bees need. Uh, and luckily they rhyme. So it's fun to say. Um, but it's really, it really is like, a, it's a policy issue. You know, it's great to like plant stuff in your own yard. And it's also really important to like push policymakers on like green infrastructure that's forward looking. 
I don't know. That's that's something I always want to ask about, Monica, like your your thoughts on in your research, um, how urban agriculture relates to other aspects of sort of city planning and like the future of just dwelling in, in cities. <laughs> yeah, I well I I really don't have data to back this affirmation, but I feel that people are more interested in um, urban agriculture than ever before, people in cities. And so I hope that um, city planners and people who do urbanism, um, hopefully they will consider this when they are planning uh, changes in cities or when they are planning new places. Um, And I think through the book and the research, one of the best examples I found on how policy can really help change uh, things and back projects is um, in Paris. And they have this uh, program which is called Paris Cultures. And they they promote the development of uh, urban agriculture projects through the city. And they, the aim is to have 100 hectares uh, at some point. And it started in 2016. And quite a few of the projects on the book are part of, are sort of graduates from this program, like the Saffron uh, Sisters, or there is also an organic flower farm. There is the, uh, the farm, the edible gardens on top of the Opera Bastille, which is called Topailleur, and they also come from uh, this program. And so it's great. I think it's a great example, not only for what they are achieving, because they are actually making Paris much greener, but it's also a great initiative to promote biodiversity and make agriculture more present in the lives of Parisians while creating jobs, starting a conversation on healthy eating and, you know, making companies the local authorities and the communities working, they they are all working together towards the same goal. And I think that's how the future, I I feel that by involving as many people as possible, not only from a policy level, but also from like citizen level, companies, uh, startups, they are achieving amazing things in only, it started in 2016. It's been five years and you can see it's tangible like you go to Paris and you see that there are rooftops and there are bacon lots where where there are things going on yeah it really requires the commitment from politicians and from urban planners and policymakers to actually see these projects through I think in a lot of ways and also giving access to that land to urban mm-hmm. growers right like the possibility of instead of developing that land putting it aside or protecting that land yeah. or um, giving grants and funds and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a matter of uh, really valuing this uh, these projects when it comes to capital and capitalism. And one you know hectare of land, you can imagine the real estate value, right? <laughs> and so it requires uh, weighting the other side of that equation and weighting the value of beekeeping and urban urban agriculture enough culturally for us to tip the scales and and find the money and and save that land for that. So I guess it's a call to everyone um, individually in their own cities to tell their elected officials that's something they care about. 
This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. I wanted to um, ask a question. You kind of, um, or it's mentioned in the beginning of the book about the idea of the popularity of urban agriculture and how it's become more popular in the last couple of years, um, especially during the pandemic, because everybody was at home. There was the fear of food shortages, that type of thing. Um, and um, it's mentioned in the book that, um, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of attention has been put towards urban agriculture. And the question is asked, will that attention last? Right. And that's like, the ongoing urban agriculture question of like, okay, it's becoming really popular. Like what, what will happen in five years and 10 years and things like that. Um, so in, in um, doing these case studies of, of many of these urban farmers all over the world, um, have you come, you know, come about a certain answer? I know that's a little bit hard to say, cause like, who knows, but through through speaking to these urban farmers, what what did you get the feeling of? Like how what you know, um, just from speaking to these companies or speaking to nonprofits or speaking to educational gardens mm-hmm. and farms? What you know what what was the feel that you got? Did did you actually get to kind of answer that question for at least yourself at the end? Um, yeah, well, yeah. As you say, who knows, right? <laughs> What's gonna happen? But um, I could really feel the energy, like people were really convinced and most people who work in that field do it by conviction, like they really truly believe in what they are doing, they really think that is important and um, there are so many ways of making it work. That's what we talk about in a, in a previous question, like urban farmers don't only grow food, they have they can have a relevant role, like, I don't know, teaching children about nature. Um, in the next few decades, quite a, a lot of new people will come to cities, according to the UN uh, field. I think it's almost 70% of people will be living in urban areas in 20 years. So there are children who might not know or have, who might not have never, never seen a cow or, you know, a plant in uh, uh, growing. So I think it's going to be, I don't know if it, if it will be part of the, um, of the school curriculum or, but there are so many, so many ways of making it something 
um, that is going to last, that is going to be part of the cities of the future, because it has to be. I mean, considering the climate crisis, considering the world we are living in, <laughs> it, it feels as part of the solution, not, not in feeding entire cities, but in educating people and letting and giving them an excuse to be closer to nature. Because when you know, like everything, I feel when you know something, you respect something, someone, you respect that more. So if you have seen a plant growing, you might, you might then consider who is behind this lettuce that I'm buying at the supermarket, who has done the hard work, which might have consequences for uh, different sort of policy regarding immigration, workers' rights. It has so many branches that it can, it can touch from just that simple gesture of taking a child to a farm and showing him. So, yeah, I hope, I hope that's the future. <laughs> yeah, I really do think it's important to consider, like you said, urban agriculture as part of a sort of conceptual movement we need to make, too, to understand some of these systems. Um, and it seems like it kind of relates to the role of urban food and agriculture movements um, in history in cities that were also partially about education and about politics and not just about growing food. You know, I think of um, the Black Panthers or the Green Guerrilla Movement. I think there probably hasn't been enough recognition when you look back at history of people who have always grown food. If you look back, Many of the people who used to grow food in cities did it because of necessity, whereas now it feels more like a lifestyle thing. I think you're right in that we haven't always recognized these projects as as significant as they have been in the past. And um, now we're in a moment where it's in this weird zone of being in some ways, aspirational and lifestyle for individual gardeners and for folks who are trying to incorporate more urban agriculture, pollinator-friendly plants into their own yard. Um, but there are also people who are trying larger scale agriculture in cities. And uh, maybe, Wythe, was that your question you wanted to expand on? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's because I think it's an assumption either way that like urban agriculture could be scaled up to feed lots of people, at least certain kinds of plants, like certain nutrients, or that it can't, and that it's purely a matter of like hobbyism and lifestyle. Um, and I think clearly there's people who are trying to scale it up to, to meet a lot of nutritional needs when it comes to at least like leafy greens and vining crops and maybe like, you know, fish you could imagine for a lot of coastal cities or an indoor, you know, recirculating aquaponics or something. Um, so I think it is a question of like, how much food could or should be grown in cities that different cities have talked about, most probably prominently recently Singapore, saying they're going to try to be 30% food sovereign as a city state, right? They're going to grow 30% of their food on their territory. And Singapore is slightly smaller than New York City, for example. So that's like a question that's come up here is like, well, wait, if they can do 30%, could we do even 2%? Or like, what would that mean? 2% of certain crops or like how much was it a matter? Like, what are the barriers? Is it a matter of investment? Is it land? Like, you know, what does that even mean to sort of wrap your head around? Um, but I think it does raise that question of like, is urban agriculture just a sort of lifestyle, you know, hobby, uh, or is it 
I mean, I think it's probably um, a range of things, and I think there's probably a lifestyle component today, but I am curious about people who are trying to make that professional shift. And if you, I mean, you talk to a range of people, as, as we have, and if you've noticed different, you know, aspects of, of the move to be an urban farmer, I don't know, maybe Melissa, do you have anything to add here as a, a pro? Yeah, actually, I've been, I've been like, hold it back. But um, I mean, kind of the interesting historical context, uh, a lot of times is um, people become interested in urban agriculture during times of crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And also a lot of, there's a lot of uh, political support and funding and things like that, um, specifically in the US from the federal government, you know, during the time of the Great Depression, during the world wars, um, you know, in the 1970s, um, urban agriculture became really popular because, you know, for example, New York City almost went bankrupt, but, you know, that was practiced more by um, the um, people of color who were still left in the city um, because um, they didn't have, uh, because of redlining and things like that. So, um, you know, uh, I think also a larger question is, you know, the the attention to urban agriculture, but also um, with the times of crisis or things like that, like we're going through a pandemic, but Monica, kind of like what you mentioned, these larger, you know, long-term things like climate change, like we're, we're still going to be going through these things. And <laughs> with the fear of, you know, food shortages or whatever, are people going to be more drawn to it? Or, or through, you know, the also other aspect that you said um, in, in kind of as one of the like solutions to climate change or not solutions, but, but could at least kind of help with climate changes. If you're growing more, um, you know, just more greenery in cities in general because of heat Island effect and all these other things. So, um, yeah, just the, the interesting aspect of historical context and when urban agriculture is popular and also the attention of, you know, just everyday folks and, yeah you know, when they're interested in it and when they're going to actually do it and spend the time doing it. Right. Yeah. Like they, they put their busy, some time in their busy urban lives aside to, to practice um, urban agriculture. So sorry, that was me renting, but. A German friend of mine told me that until a few years ago, it was basically the opposite of fashionable to have an allotment in German cities it was a matter of like pensioner, pensioners, you know, like older people. Um, and now there is like a five year waiting list and it's all younger people who are very interested in, in nature and environment. And I feel, yes, there must be a life aspect to it. But there is also an interest because if it's only a lifestyle aspect to it, you, you get tired, like... It's hard work. <laughs> After a few days, you probably just would give up um, in, in many ways. I mean, so I think you need, you need a real interest to keep, to keep doing it because it, it requires dedication. Maybe it starts as a kind of aspirational and lifestyle engagement. Um, and then there really is kind of a larger commitment, but you become in relationship both with the plants, maybe with your neighbors and like with this larger community. Um, but yeah, it certainly requires uh, a commitment beyond, uh, you know, something purely hobbyist, if you're really going to make it work. <laughs> in that sense of, of folks who are, um, you know, getting into 
urban agriculture or growing in cities, um, what are some how-tos or takeaways for apartment dwellers trying to garden more on their fire escapes or balconies? Did, did you kind of, um, would you suggest any of those from all of the different um, uh, people that you interviewed, Monica? Well, probably the most important is to start, <laughs> to just go for it. And also, I think, starting with something easy, like um, herbs, for example, um, basil grows fast. So that could be a good one to keep you motivated. In the book, there is a sort of guide to grow, to grow food in small spaces. And um, yeah, I think one of the, of the most important things is to consider the space. Monica, do you want to plug the book and how uh, we should find it and explore it online? So the title of the book is Urban Farmers, and the book is out in the U.S. on the 13th of July. In Europe, it's already out. And you can find it in bookshops or online places like uh, bookshop.org. Great. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and hearing about um, your adventure in covering both urban farms in person and remotely during a pandemic. And uh, the book itself is beautiful photography as well. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at fields podcast heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer and more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the hrn family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.